Welcome to Humanly, the podcast providing allied health and integrative medicine practitioners with the most up-to-date, evidence-based and clinically relevant information. Here's your host, Daniel Reuters. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Humanly podcast. My name is Daniel Reuters, and today I'm joined by Professor Bill Von Hippel from the School of Psychology at the University of Queensland. Thank you so much for coming along today, Bill. Oh, my pleasure, Daniel. Happy to be here. Bill, it's uh, a real privilege to have you on because I know you've uh, been on some pretty serious uh, podcasts and interviews. So you've been on Joe Rogan and um, on London Real as well with with Brian Rose. So you're a bit of a seasoned veteran at, at these types of uh, things, I bet. Uh, worn out and desiccated, but sure. I like the title seasoned veteran better. <laughs> Bill, the reason why I wanted to get you on today was because I know that there's been obviously a lot of mixed emotions and and fear and anxiety and depression and sadness happening over the course of the last eight months. And I sort of want to put a little bit of a different twist on things. I, I want to talk about happiness mm-hmm. and the importance of, of happiness and just trying to lift people's vibration a little bit uh, when they listen to this because it's very easy for people to stay in that low vibrational state and be fearful and sad and and depressed. Um, And I know you've done some work previously on happiness. So do you want to give me a little bit of background on the work you've done around that? Yeah, sure. So um, in our lab, we take an evolutionary approach. We're interested in, you know, sort of the, the history of humans um, and our ancestral species over the last six million years since we separated from our chimpanzee cousins. And so we tend to think about what makes us happy in terms of these evolutionary imperatives, the things that we evolved to do that are in our genes' best interest, and how by, you know, basically taking those into account and trying to follow that genetic advice, so to speak, um, we can make ourselves happier. Big question that I've uh, sort of got on my mind is why people are always trying to chase happiness. I feel as though we're always seeking happiness and we think that, oh, when something happens, when this happens or when that happens, I'm going to be happy. And we get to that point and we don't end up being as happy as we thought we were going to be. So what's going on there? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a sort of dirty trick that evolution played on us. Um, And if you think about it in evolution terms, it makes perfect sense, but it's a sneaky trick nonetheless. And the idea is this, you know, imagine two ancestors who both had some goal they were trying to achieve, um, you know, catching the saber-toothed tiger or a mastodon or whatever it was they had in mind. And imagine how they both were thinking how happy they'd be if they did it. Well, on the positive side, they're both highly motivated to go out and achieve this goal. And so let's say that, you know, they get out there, slog across the ice, kill the mastodon, whatever the case might be. And now imagine that one of them stays happy because that was all he ever wanted to do. And so he's achieved it now and he basically stays happy forever. Whereas imagine the other one slowly sinks back to what you might call baseline levels of happiness. Well, the ancestor who stays happy forever will be a lot less motivated to achieve new goals because he's already got the happiness that comes with goal achievement. Whereas the ancestor who drops back to you know baseline levels of happiness now is hungry again, so to speak, motivationally desiring to get out there and achieve a new goal. And so we tend to, we mistake our own future. We tend to think our happiness will be longer lasting than it is. And often the experience of happiness itself is just as 
as blissful as we envisioned it would be, although often not. But even when it is, even when we're just as happy as we thought we'd be by virtue of achieving our goals, that fades far quicker than we would have guessed, in large part because if it didn't, evolution would lose one of its primary motivators, which is those feelings of happiness we get when we go out and achieve new things. And so if you look at the data, like, for example, there's a lovely study by uh, Shige Oishi and his colleagues, and they looked at how happy people were in the mid-80s. And then they waited 20 years till now now in the job market, how much money they're making. And it turned out that the ideal amount of happiness to make a lot of money was sort of moderate level happiness, not unhappiness, because those people tended not to do as well. But interestingly, not very high levels of happiness either, because those folks just simply weren't that motivated. They didn't want to put in the long hours. They were very content the way they were. So evolution doesn't care how we feel. It cares how successful we are. And if if making you a success means that sometimes you have to feel a little bit bummed out to motivate you, well, then that's what evolution is going to do. And so the end result is that we've actually evolved the system of happiness where we have this baseline level, which unfortunately is pretty highly genetic. And then you can bring it up from that baseline level by achieving whatever goals you're seeking out, but they tend to drop right back down to where you were before. Right. So what you're saying is that basically the reason why we developed these feelings of happiness was a survival mechanism is that what i'm getting yeah so it's the way a good way to think about it is this you know how happy would it make you to eat your some lovely dessert that's full of fat and sugar and maybe even a little bit of salt versus how happy would it make you feel to eat a dog turd lying on the ground well (laughs) evolution doesn't want you eating dog turds because that's full of pathogens and very low nutritive value it wants you to eat things with high fat salt and sugar because That's what was scarce in our ancestral environment and very high nutritive value. So doing the things that make you, um, that that made our ancestors successful are the things that are going to make us happy. And, um, and they, and, but they can't make us permanently happy or then we won't go out and try to achieve anymore. They can, the goal is what evolution really wants is something to make you happy for a little while. And then that motivated you enough to go out and try to do it again. Right, so it's like a perfectly flawed system in a way. Yeah. Because if perfectly you were perfectly flawed is a good description. Mm, yeah, it's really interesting. I remember um, talking to some people around. You were mentioning before about levels of success and the the research that, that gentleman had done, and I remember um, reading s- some studies and talking to some people around the sort of optimal level of success that makes you happy, and. I think the way that they based that um, outcome on was how much money actually makes you happy. And it was around about like seventy or $80,000. Once you get to that point, you don't actually will necessarily become any happier if you were to say earn $150,000. Uh, but certainly anything under that 80000 or $70,000, uh, you are less happy. So... When we're looking at um, that sort of aspect, could we say that um, that could be said across all different aspects of our life or is that only sort of specific to, say, earning an income? Yeah, so that's a good question. Look, there's a couple caveats here. Um, The first is that we tend to be happier when we earn a little bit more than everybody else does. Now, it makes a big difference going out of poverty because when you can't meet your basic needs, it's hard to be happy. But once you get out of poverty and you're kind of, we'll call it middle class or, or well, re- acceptably well-to-do, then every added dollar that you make doesn't give you that much bang for the buck. Although 
it you can still keep getting a little bit happier as you go up and become wealthy. So wealthy people are not much, but a little bit happier than folks in the middle class. The key difference, though, is that it turns out that this only holds in one time point. So the, my favorite example is you can look in the EU or the United States, where they've been collecting happiness data for like 50 years, and you can see that as purchasing power let's stick with the United States, as purchasing power has literally quadrupled in the US over the last 50 years, um, happiness hasn't moved an iota. It hasn't nudged the stick at all. So on average, people are exactly as happy now as they were 50 years ago, even though they can purchase way more things than they ever could have before. Now, if you look at that, that seems weird. How could you quadruple your purchasing power and not get happier, when at the same time, we know that as you get richer in any one time point, you do get happier. Whereas you're not even, you don't even need to become richer just if you are personally more wealthy than people around you. And what the data suggests is what's going on there is it's basically a status thing. It makes you happier to be higher status than others, largely because the ways that our ancestors competed for mates was by trying to always be at least as good, if not a little bit better as everyone else in their group. So if you're a little wealthier than everybody else, then you have a, sort of achieved that status goal. And as a consequence of achieving that status goal, it makes you a little bit happier. Whereas if the whole world got wealthy at the same time, which is from you know the perspective of somebody living in the States, that's what's happening as America becomes wealthier. Well, then it doesn't make you any happier because you're not actually becoming higher in status. So things like money do bring happiness, but largely what they say, once you meet your basic needs, what the data suggests is what's actually making you happy is not that the stuff you actually buy with your money, but just the fact that you feel like you're a higher status than others. So what you're trying to say basically is that material things don't necessarily bring happiness at all. Yeah, even that's, though, that's the bummer, right? Well, that's essentially what uh, the Western society has been built off is the fact that when you have more, you're going to be happier. And I guess that's been driving a lot of people to study harder, work longer hours, um, spend more time in the office, less time with family, all of those uh, sort of things that we just take for granted as a normal part of life. And we think that we're actually becoming happier or we're on the road to happiness by doing those things, but we're really not. So what are the things that truly make us happy then? Is there, has there been any studies that actually look at that? Yeah, there have, fortunately. And so I would, I would say two things. First, with regard to earning money and buying stuff, the downside is exactly as you say. Stuff doesn't make us happy because pretty soon we stop even noticing the stuff that we have. But interestingly, if you use the money that you work hard to earn to buy experiences, those seem to make you happier. And so in my own case, this is kind of counterintuitive because it always – I always felt like, you know, it's so um, wasteful to spend a large amount of money on a vacation when two weeks later that vacation's over and you've got nothing to show for it but a little bit of a sunburn. Whereas if you use that exact same money to buy a new couch or renovate your kitchen or whatever, you would have something to show for it for a very long time. But in actual fact, if you buy the new couch or renovate your kitchen very quickly, it doesn't make you happy at all anymore. So even though the kitchen or the couch lasts for a long time, the, the happiness that comes with it doesn't. The, the end result of the experiences that were quite different, even though literally the experience itself is over quite quickly, it becomes part of our memory, it becomes part of ourself. And so experiences can make you happy for years after you took them. Um, the, the most notable example of my own life is when I was in grad school, I had been saving up money to buy a new couch because the couch that was in our living room, we had literally found on the side of the road. 
And my roommates from, from college called me and they're like, hey, we're going to go to Aspen. You want to come with us? And of course, I'd love to do that, but I that would take all the money I'd saved up to buy a new couch. And so I thought, oh, forget it. I can always get a new couch later. And so I went and I felt really guilty about it. And I felt like, boy, this is so wasteful. But in actual fact, you know, here we are 30 years later. And when I think back on that trip to Aspen, I still, it makes me happy. Whereas there's no chance that that couch would still be in our house, whatever hideous thing I would have bought my wife would have tossed long ago. And even if she hadn't, it wouldn't survive this long and I wouldn't care. And so the first piece of advice that, that I would give is that when you do have extra cash, not your, the cash you need to get by, but extra cash, you're, you're actually a lot better off buying things that are experiences rather than buying things to own. And of course, experiences don't have to be things that are just fleeting. Like if you really love to go out um, bicycle riding, well, you buy a bicycle that's something you own, but you own it for the purpose of having these experiences. That's a really good point you bring up there because when I'm working in clinical practice with clients, a lot of people are very unhappy. Yeah. And it may be that they're trying to pursue the wrong avenue to try and make themselves happy. So as you said, rather than trying to have more things, actually start to participate in social activities or having experiences um, with other people, it seems like it's probably going to have a far uh, more lasting and beneficial effect. Yeah, that's, a, that's exactly right. And in fact, the, the only thing that we've ever found that literally makes you happier and stay happier in the long term, and the only thing that breaks that rule I mentioned before, which is that our happiness evolved to come back down, is when you have um, very successful long-term relationships. And so most of the research has been done around marriage, but nonetheless, it holds for any successful long-term relationship. So the best example, there's this wonderful work by Richard Lucas, who is part of this longitudinal study in Germany where they gather data for decades on people's lives. And what they can do is they can track you back the day before you even met your wife and see how happy you were then, and then see what happens when you meet this, this person you're going to marry, and then track how, how happy you are as the wedding day approaches, and then as the wedding day recedes in the rearview mirror. And what's interesting is that if you marry somebody that you're subsequently going to divorce, so we now know, looking back on your life, that this isn't going to work out, we actually see that people's happiness starts to diminish even as the wedding is approaching. So it's like as if somewhere inside them, they knew things weren't working out already, but somehow they, they followed through and did it anyway. But so those are not good cases because unhappiness just keeps going down, down, down and ends up quite a bit lower than it was before you met the person. But if you marry somebody that, that's a really good relationship where you're a really compatible couple, what you now see is that happiness goes up, up, up. The year you got married is happier than the year before. And so is the next year after that and the next year after that. And in fact, if you look at the top, third of those happy married couples, you find that 10 years later, they're still happier than they were the day they got married and still substantially happier than they were before they met their partner. So making a really good life choice, finding the right partner for you is seems to be one of the few things that actually can give you permanent happiness. So that whole, the whole aspect of getting cold feet might actually be your body's way of trying to protect you from long-term unhappiness. Yeah, your feet know more than your head do in that particular case. 
Interesting. And I guess a lot of people don't trust that feeling. I think a lot of people try and, well, obviously they do push through it because there's a lot of uh, unhappy relationships and, and a lot of unhappy couples and a lot of divorce. Yeah, of course. And, you know, it's hard as the wedding's coming up and people know about it and guests are coming from afar. You don't want to throw a spanner in the works. And so you tell yourself, well, I'm just nervous. And well, I'm, we're not getting along right now because we're busy planning the wedding and it's stressful. And you you just tell yourself these stories. And of course, if if you literally aren't happy while you're trying to plan a wedding, well, how happy are you likely to be when you're trying to raise your snot nosed obnoxious little kids or when you're trying to navigate two jobs and all the commuting and difficult rent to pay and all those other things. And so if you can't be happy together while you're trying to plan a wedding, it's not a good sign for being happy together for the rest of your life. I have a question for you, Bill. Do you think that with everything that's been going on over the last eight months and obviously a lot of older people now are having difficulty seeing their friends and family due to the restrictions around uh, gathering and, and visiting people. Do you think that that could potentially have a detrimental impact uh, and a long-lasting impact on their health? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. And unfortunately, I think it could. So the um, the best data that we have for that is again actually Shige Oishi, who I mentioned before, has this lovely study that he that he ran where he, it 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 sounds different on the surface, but it's actually looking at the same basic phenomenon. And so what he did is he got people in their sixties, and he asked them how many times they moved when they were a child, and so you know residential moves. And you got some people who lived in the same household their entire childhood. And you've got other people like, you know, a military brat, for example, or a, a child of um, some sort of uh, diplomat or overseas type um, multinational employee who moves around a lot. And so you can you can imagine basically moving anywhere between zero and 15 times across your childhood, with 15 obviously being kind of rare. And then he separated them as a function of whether they're introverted or extroverted. So you've got these people who... We know how many times they moved as a kid, and we know how introverted, introverted or extroverted they are. And then we just look. We wait 10 years, and we look at their risk of mortality over the decade when they're in their 60s. And what he finds is that it doesn't matter how many times you moved if you're an extrovert. Uh, there's no effect on mortality in your 60s moving as a child. But if you're introverted, the more times you moved around, you had residential move as a child, the more likely you were to literally die in your 60s. And the notion is that for introverts, it's very difficult to uproot from one community and move into a new one because it's hard for the, harder for them to meet new people. They don't enjoy being with people they don't know as well as much as extroverts do, and they don't enjoy trying to get to know people as much as extroverts do. And so what you're doing with introverts when, you, when they move a lot as a child is you're disrupting their sense of connection and community. And that disruption, interestingly, has literally lifelong effects on their physical health. It builds up biological costs that never can be um, paid back. They, your body's no longer as strong as it was before, and so your risk of dying 60 years later is um, higher. That's not a huge risk, but it's a notable risk. And I think the same thing holds, my guess is, for things like COVID. Now, fortunately... A, when this happens, it's 
let's hope it's the last pandemic of your or my lifetime, but we'll see. So hopefully it's a one-off. Hopefully we've got a vaccine pretty soon. And furthermore, with a little luck, those folks who are forced to isolate the most also have at their disposal lots of electronic ways to communicate that allow them to have a proxy measure of being with their loved ones. And so, for example, in in my own case, my folks are basically on lockdown because at their age, you know, they're in their late 80s. This will kill them in 45 minutes. So they're not seeing anybody. But we Skype and Zoom and call them. And so with a little luck, they can establish enough of a social connection via electronic means to kind of make up for what they're missing. But I have to tell you, we don't know for sure how much these kind of electronic communications can actually serve as a proxy for the real thing because different things do happen with the real thing. A, skin-to-skin contact between people is important, releases oxytocin, et cetera. And B, the your bodies get in synchrony when you're physically together in a way that they just don't electronically. And with the clearest example being, if you look at how often you interrupt each other when you're speaking electronically, it's much more common than when you're speaking face-to-face because all the cues that we usually rely on without even thinking about it, many of them are missing via electronic communication and the kind of lags that often get introduced. Yeah, such an important point that you raised there, Bill. And my mind is immediately going to the fact that a lot more health consultations with allied health practitioners are being done or undertaken online now. So always what's making me wonder, now you've said that, um, how effective those online consultations actually are and are we missing a lot of cues when we're dealing with our clients and do we have the potential there to actually miss some really important information? I, I think that's probably something that a lot of people haven't really thought about. Okay. Um, Yeah, I suspect that that does happen. I think it's kind of an empirical question to be worth investigating. If I had to guess, and this is just purely a guess, I would say that when you shift from face-to-face to to online with somebody, you're less likely to miss things because you have that background of face-to-face contact with them. Whereas if you just start out online and never have face-to-face contact with the client, I suspect but don't know there's greater risk of missing things that you simply don't have the opportunity to pick up on by virtue of those slightly diminished communication channels. Yeah, interesting. You know how before we were talking about, or you were mentioning about the fact that moving more as a child can reduce your uh, life expectancy. Mm -hmm. In uh, around 1944, 1945, there was the Dutch hunger winter. And a lot of people went very hungry for a long time and it actually had some negative impacts on the way that people's genes were expressed. So they were then at greater risk of obesity and diabetes and other non-communicable diseases. Do you think that with all of the uh, fear and unhappiness and things that are actually uh, going around this year, could that potentially have the same effect? Could it change our genes so that it's harder for us to experience happiness in the future or maybe it makes it easier for us to be happier in the future yeah look it's a really good question i mean the the world has introduced a natural experiment so to speak um into everyone's lives economists call this an exogenous shock because it's not something that i didn't decide all right tomorrow i'll behave as if there's a pandemic 
Rather, it came upon me whether I wanted it or not. And interestingly, it comes upon different people at different times, because of course it hits the world at, at different paces, depending where you live. And it also abates at different times. So we're very fortunate, you and I, to live in Queensland, where although we're now getting a little bit closer to lockdown, our lives have been a whole lot easier than they are down in Melbourne or even Sydney, and our lives are way easier than they are over in the States. And so um, economists and geneticists and psychologists and all sorts of allied health practitioners are going to be able to look at what's happening and the sort of offset way timing it, which should happen in different places to address that very question. And then what, what will be really interesting to know is, A, do we get these kind of epigenetic changes that you're talking about, where you get changes in gene expression? B, if you do, are there any long-term consequences, or does it just shift right back to normal once you get your life back to, to where it was before? Um, next, it, might it even have intergenerational consequences? We know in, in rats and things that we can get, mice, we can get epigenetic effects across generations, particularly if you're pregnant when you're you're, you get epigenetic changes, you can see outcomes in the in the pups. Will that happen for humans? Um, there's less good evidence for that in, in people, but it's certainly a, a theoretical possibility. So it, in principle, it ought to work. And, um, and then will all that differ as a function again, to go back to the earlier experiment of extroversion and introversion? So, you know, when I think about my brother, my older brother's more introverted, this is barely having an impact on him. He's married. He's very happy to be with his wife in semi-lockdown and, and doesn't mind that he doesn't go out as much and do as much. In fact, um, I was just on the phone with a friend from college who's very introverted, um, and he he sees it as, you know, he doesn't want to he, – he knows the world's suffering, but he actually feels – he's personally pleased that his wife can't schedule all the social events that she would always want him to be scheduled and that he and she can just hang out together and talk or read a book or go for a walk and do quieter things. So, you know, it, it may well be the case that that the kinds of things that we're talking about actually do have long-lasting impact and they may have different kinds of impact depending on who you are. Yeah, it's a something that I've uh, been aware of probably over the last couple of months because myself, I'm fairly introverted and my uh, fiance is very extroverted and it's been really tough uh, on her because she loves to get out and have a lot of experiences and as we were talking about earlier she's very much uh, driven by getting her happiness from doing things and traveling and meeting people and and having those experiences where myself I'm more happy to stay at home and read a book or yeah. read an article or something like that so my happiness hasn't really changed that much but for her it's uh changed quite a lot and i've found it fairly difficult to keep her levels of, of happiness up it sort of shifts and wanes quite a lot so uh, this may be something you could possibly help him with but i mean is there anything that i could look at doing or even for people in a similar position as myself could look at doing to help shift that feeling or to help increase their happiness Look, it's just hard because it is. If you're in a kind of lockdown situation, it's you can't readily go out and do the social things that people like to do. Now, what we've been doing, and it actually works better than you'd imagine. So it's worth a try if you haven't already. Is having various Zoom get-togethers with friends where we'll get together for, over wine and cheese. You know, 
they're X distant miles away or maybe even around the corner, but it's locked down. And so we just sit there and drinking wine and chatting and, and eating together. And it seems goofy, but actually the goofy feeling disappears really fast. And it's quite enjoyable to get together with people like that. And in some ways, you can even imagine that this might be one of the benefits that comes out of all this is that we start to have a greater tendency to schedule social e-social activities that we never would have scheduled before. We would maybe call our friends and chat with them, but we wouldn't sit down for an hour over wine and cheese or something like that. And then they're on the other side of the computer. And so in, in our case, I've I found that to be really enjoyable. Look, I, I'm an old guy though. And so I don't know what advice I would give to someone who's 18 who that's really insufficient. Because I do think that this is coming down hardest on you know the folks who are really old and are really high risk of, of it killing them. And then people who are, you know, between 14 and or maybe even 10 and 25, who are used to be able to go out and do everything, in all probability, even if they got sick, it would do them no harm at all. But they're trying to do the right thing by society and not be spreaders. And so it's being wildly disruptive on their social lives and for that matter, on their opportunities for getting jobs and stuff as well. So I don't know if the sort of e get togethers are a a good enough proxy for young people who, you know, want to be much more out and about, but it's in my mind, it's certainly better than nothing and worth a try. Absolutely. And I think we're not really going to understand the, the full impact of what's really happened this year for probably several years to come. It always seems yeah. to be the way when there's a big event, uh, we learn from the things that we did right and the things that we didn't do so right. Yeah. So hopefully there is uh, not another event like this in our lifetimes, but if there is, I think maybe we'll be able to deal with it a little bit better than we have. Yeah, and and we'll also, I think, learn a lot from it just by virtue of the fact that lots of countries have tried different approaches, that places got were good or bad at different times. And again, that's nature inducing this exogenous shock that allows you to then have a pseudo experiment. We call them quasi-experiments that will give us pretty good evidence about what was a good thing to do and what wasn't. So we'll at least have learned a lot from this about psychology, about physiology, and with a little luck, as you say, about how to deal with it next time. Do you think there's much uh, validity to positive thinking, positive reinforcement, uh, that type of practice? I think that, so I'm not a clinical psychologist, so I'm not, this is, you know, not my area and, and you should take what I take with the, what I say with a grain of salt, but I do think that lots of people engage in lots of negative self-talk. And so for, if that's you, then there's great value in trying to take a more positive approach and trying to see the glasses at least half full or a quarter full or however full it might be. Um, if you're the kind of person who's optimistic and has a, an approach orientation to the world, well, that's kind of what you're doing dispositionally already. Whereas if you're the kind of person who the glass does seem half empty a lot, or you're more pessimistic, or you, or these kinds of events that we're going through right now really throw you, then yes, trying to find the silver lining has got to be a valuable exercise. Thanks so much for covering off on those points with me, Bill. I think people are going to find that really beneficial. Uh, there were a couple of other things that I wanted to talk to you about as well. Um, and one of those being your book, The Social Leap. I know that you've had that published over the 
or I think you released it just a little bit over 12 months ago. So did you want to sort of talk a little bit about The Social Leap, why you chose to write that book uh, and what the experience has been like um, since you've actually published that? Sure. And so, you know, my life, I feel like I'm, I'm more of a, a pinball bouncing along in a game someone's playing than a self-directed entity. And it's not that I don't have plans and goals. It's just that it seems to me that a lot of the big things that happen in my life end up popping out of, out of the wild unexpectedly. And in this particular case, for quite a few years, I'd been kind of wanting to write a book, a, a, not an academic book for my fellow academics, but just a, reg, a book for everybody. And um, But I didn't know how to do it. And I, I knew that you know I needed a publisher and an agent, and I didn't know how to get one. So I hadn't acted on it because I've got I'm too busy anyway to start finding these things. And then out of all random coincidences, we had written a paper published for an academic audience on on charisma and mental speed. And Harvard Business Review picked it up because they thought it was relevant to leadership and stuff, I suppose. And so they did a podcast with me. Um, and now I happen to be up on Groot Island, which is way up in the Gulf of Carpentaria, not so far from Darwin. And I was doing research up there and we had a terrible phone connection. And so my main concern was just trying to be able to hear the person and and answer the questions. And so I kind of it was fun, but I kind of forgot about it more. My standout memory was more that it was trying to have, be somewhere on the island with a decent connection. And then um, I got this email out of the blue from someone who said that they'd heard this podcast I've done and they were an agent and they wanted to know if I wanted to write a book. And I didn't think I'd sort of forgotten it was a podcast. I just remember that I had this interview where it's hard to hear. And, um, and so I was at first I thought they were confused or just spam. But then um, other people wrote me and said they enjoyed the podcast. And I thought, oh, well, this must be for real then. And then I remembered I had done this podcast. And so I contacted the agent. I said, look, I actually am really interested in writing a book, um, but I don't really know how. I don't know how to put together a proposal. And she goes, don't worry about that. I'll take you through all that. Let's talk about what the book would be like. I told her what I had in mind. She thought it sounded like fun. And so basically, with her, without her help, it would have never happened. Without that phone call, it would have never happened. Without that random article that I wrote, and then I was up on this island giving this podcast, it wouldn't have happened. But the, the end result was I took a bunch of the work that we've been doing over the last, um, I'd say, 15 years and, um, and put together this story about how I think our early evolutionary history, you know, our, our split from chimpanzees six to seven million years ago and why we left them and then the, what the consequences were and then how those consequences, the changes in our lifestyle then manifested in our modern psychology. And so that's basically what the book became. And of course, it was great fun to write because usually we, those of us in academics, write for each other in these very jargon-filled, statistically complicated um, really dense papers that are not much fun to read, but that are intended to communicate some very specific point. So it, for me, it was a great change of pace to be able to write a much broader thing that's that's more casual, more fun, and intended to be accessible to anybody. So that that's sort of the story about how it all came about. And how has that book been received since you've released it? I'm sure you've had uh, a lot of people very, very interested. Well, it's 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 been really fun. So, um, the I as you mentioned earlier, uh, I got to go on Rogan's podcast. So, my publicist asked me, "Is there any one place you'd most like to talk about the work?" And of course, his podcast has such enormous reach. 
and he has a fundamental interest in evolutionary processes. And so I, that was my, um, the one thing that I was, I said, well, that would be what I'd really love. And she was able to, fortunately the schedule was available. She was able to get me on his podcast the day the book was published. Now we, so we flew over to LA a couple of days in advance to do, and he, his podcast was the start of a large book tour. We got really lucky though, because as it turned out, Malibu was on fire. A big section of San Fernando Valley was on fire. And that's both where his home is and where his studio is. And so, I, when, you know, the night before we're in San Fernando Valley um, because I want to be relatively near his studio so I don't get stuck in traffic or something. And you literally, the street we're driving down, you're not allowed to take a left. All the police are at every traffic light. You either go straight or you take a right because it's on fire to the left. Now, I didn't know this, but his na- his neighbor where he lives was on fire as well. He'd been evacuated from his house, and his studio was only about a few blocks away from that kind of fire line where you weren't allowed to go. So I thought, well, there's every chance he'll just cancel, and I didn't even know that he was already evacuated. And so when I showed up at the, at his um, studio to do the podcast, he rocked up, and he looked really tired. And, and, and then he told me, look, our, you know, my... I've been evacuated into a hotel with my wife and kids. The house, the neighborhood's on fire. I don't think his house ever actually burned down, but I don't, I don't know if there was any problem with his home because then I left. But um, nonetheless, it was awfully kind of him when he's got all that going on to go ahead and do the podcast anyway because you know he could cancel me. No one's ever heard of me. There's no cost to doing that whatsoever, and it would have saved him a lot of headache. But it was very kind, like I said, and and he did it and. And he has such reach that, you know, the book went from basically nobody buying it to overnight having gone on his podcast. Um, like the audiobook, for example, was the top 100 on Amazon. And that's entirely because of the show. So from there, it popped around into various places, again, um, because the show has such reach. And so it's now, it, that was great fun. And it's been translated into a bunch of languages now. And so those are starting to come out in other countries. And that's been fun as well. So what was the best part about writing that book? Was there a part that you really enjoy that you look back on and go, yeah, I'm really glad that I included that? What was the best part about it? Well, the the best part, there was a, I wouldn't say any one piece of it so much as the learning how to not write like an academic anymore and, and write in a more fun and engaging way. And so I didn't realize I had made that progress until – you know, I started at the beginning, I wrote the prologue, and then I wrote the rest of the book. And then my agent, or by now it's my editor, she says, all right, go back and rewrite the prologue. And I was like, all right, but what's wrong with it? And I went back and read, and I was like, oh my God, it's ghastly. You know, it's just full of these polysyllabic words and way too dense. And it's just, it sounds so pretentious. It was no fun at all. And it's just because it was a holdover from the way I'd been writing before. And so it made me realize that I, that I became a much better writer writing that book. And then the, the second thing that was fun about it is that I've been thinking about these ideas for about 10 to 15 years, but I'd never sat down to try to consolidate it all and, and get an exact picture in my head. And so the idea that I had in mind was about how the whole process worked was about off by about a million years of when various things in our evolutionary history would have happened that, that seemed to be necessary to me. And so when I, I, I gathered together about 1,500 papers that I had read before or still needed to read and started going through those before I wrote the book. And at first I was sort of completely um, bummed out because I had you know, written a proposal, I'd 
been given in advance. I was ready to write the book. And then the dates weren't lining up in my mind and the whole thing was maybe wrong. And then as I read more and more, I realized, oh, everything's fine. It just took an extra million years longer to get going than I thought it did, which you know, is really neither here nor there in the, across the six million years or even possibly seven since we left them. So it was really useful exercise to me to nail down exactly when things happened, to become much more closely um, aware of all these bazillion studies that have been done across uh, geology and anthropology and archaeology and biology and um, these different disciplines to try to pull together, you know, the sort of human story of where we were and how we slowly got to where we are today. Yeah, it's unbelievable when you think about uh, all the little processes that we've been through uh, over those several million years to get to where we are today. Uh, I was actually looking at a presentation that you did I think maybe a couple of years ago now. It was interesting. Uh, my brother was actually, when I was watching the video, my brother was actually sitting down in the in the front row. Oh. I was like, oh, it's small world. Yeah. But a part of that um, presentation that you gave, which I found really interesting, was the video with the uh, the monkeys in it. Yeah, yeah. That's worked by Franz de Waal and um, Sarah Brosnan, if I remember right. Yeah, what really caught my attention there was the fact that the monkeys uh, were happy when they didn't realize that, uh, well, they didn't know what the other monkey was getting. Um, do you sort of want to explain what I'm talking about sure, to the sure. listeners a little bit better? Yeah, this is a really lovely study. Again, Brosnan and DeWall, what they did is they they were interested in in what a monkey would regard as fair. And so they, they created this game. There's a rhesus monkeys and they, they give them a pebble and they put it through the, a hole in their pen and then the monkey hands it back. That's his whole job. And in reward for handing it back, they give the monkey a slice of cucumber. And so if the monkey thinks that's a fair deal, like I'll give you the pebble back for a cucumber, I'll play this game, then it'll learn the task. And the fact is that it obviously did think it was a fair deal because it obviously did learn the task pretty soon. You give it a pebble, it gives it back, you give it a cucumber, it's happy. So everything's fine until what they then did is they then shifted gears and they started giving the other monkey in the in the cage right next to it a grape instead of a cucumber for the same behavior. Well, monkeys far prefer grapes to cucumbers. And so suddenly what seemed fine before, I'm getting a cucumber for this activity, now doesn't seem fine anymore because this the, the monkey next to me is getting a grape and and they literally refuse to cooperate. They'll like throw the cucumber back at the uh, experimenter in anger when they see the other monkey getting a grape instead. And so it's a, it's a really nice example again of, of the power of, and force of sexual selection that, that we need to in one, on the one hand, it shouldn't matter at all what you're being paid because it doesn't change that I'm still getting my cucumber and that should make me happy. But another level, it does matter a lot because if you're making more money than I am, then maybe the girl that I like is going to pick you instead of me. And so maybe I'll be left behind. And so we're all very sensitive to this sort of social comparison process. What are those people around me getting? And and therefore, you know, how does what I'm getting stack up? And so, you know, imagine that you're you showed up one day to uh to put petrol in your car and the station said, Oh, we're running a special today. You know, when you gas up your car, you get a free $100 voucher. You'd be like totally psyched. And you come home and you say, wow, what a great deal. I didn't expect this. And I get this $300 voucher for gassing up my car. 
and your wife says, oh, no, 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 I went, or your friend says, oh, I went to the one across town, they gave me a $1,000 voucher. Well, immediately you'd feel ripped off. You'd be like, oh, that's terrible. You know, I only got $100 when in reality, you shouldn't feel that way at all, right? But of course you do because of this fundamental comparative process and our concern about not being left behind. So the, the wonderful thing about that experiment, A, I encourage everybody to, um, you can Google Franz de Waal's TED Talk and see it in action and it's super entertaining. But, but B, what you're looking at is obviously a very fundamental effect if monkeys do the exact same thing that we do. Well, I guess that's probably because we came from monkeys, right, Bill? Yeah, yeah. It's been it's they're farther back than apes. So you know, we split from from chimps six, seven million years ago. It's been um, and and then apes split from monkeys. I think it's in the teens of millions of years ago. I can't remember exactly anymore. But so you know, it's been a good twenty million years since we were monkeys. But nonetheless, as you point out, that's our evolutionary history. So, given that you've looked back in such great detail over the evolutional history of humans do you have any thoughts about where we're headed what do you think's gonna what do you think's gonna happen to us in the next thousand ten thousand million years have you ever sort of pondered that yeah look it's a it's a great question um prediction is hard right and so it's it's super easy to see what forces hit us not super easy it's actually very difficult but with lots of effort we were able to look at what forces pushed us around and what the consequences were. And then the question becomes, well, we've now got to a point where we've changed those forces so dramatically that the the shape of our evolutionary history and the, going forward is very difficult to predict. So in our ancestral past, genes that made you susceptible to illness would be debilitating and would make you far less likely to reproduce. And genes that made you physically stronger would be super important and they'd make you more likely to reproduce. Well, nowadays, if you're if you're susceptible to illness, it's super easy to go to the hospital and be treated for it, and and that probably won't kill you. And so you could go on and have a very productive and happy life anyway. And being physically stronger doesn't matter that much because most jobs don't rely on physical strength. And so you'll be quite successful even if you're not even if you're physically weak and, and somewhat sickly. And so the evolutionary forces on us have changed so dramatically by virtue of the way we've changed our society that the things that used to be important in our past, many of them are not anymore. And so if you think about how evolution works, reproduction is the currency of evolution. The You're an evolutionary success story if you have lots of kids. That doesn't mean you personally are, you know, you may or may not feel like a success story, but in evolutionary terms, having kids Lots of kids who, who reach adulthood themselves as evolutionary success. And so it, it becomes purely a matter of trying to predict what are the factors that are going to lead people to have more children going forward. Now, one of the interesting things about that, there was a study that came out just, uh, boy, about, I guess about a month or two ago now in The Lancet that argued that human population, by virtue of the current modeling, is likely to peak in 2064. So not that far from now, 44, 45 years from now, popula- Earth's population will re- be the largest number of humans that we ever expect to live on this planet. And then it'll start going down. And furthermore, they also the modeling shows that a number of countries, 23 different countries around the globe, will have a population by 2100 that is half the size of what it is today. Um, like, for example, Japan and Italy were two of those countries where literally the population by 2100 and in the absence of immigration, it's going to be half what it is today. 
Now that's a, an extraordinarily different world, right? And and maybe what you end up with is actually if you go a thousand years from now or a hundred thousand years from now, maybe there's not even that many humans anymore. You know, unless something changes about our desire to have kids, the average family in industrialized countries has anywhere between, depending on the country, anywhere between as low as I think even one point four or lower kids per family to um about 1.9 or so, and you need 2.1 just to replace the numbers you've got. So the world could literally start having fewer and fewer humans such that, you know, a long time from now, maybe there aren't any at all. Maybe we just sort of potchke it off. It's like that um, critical mass point. I, I think that's what it would best be referred to is that analogy where you have a jar of jelly beans, you got a thousand jelly beans in the jar and you ask someone at what point if you take what, if you double the amount of jelly beans that you take out of that jar every day, at what point will um, there be half the amount of jelly beans in the, in the jar? And it's on day nine. Yeah, it right? goes fast. And so it, it does go fast and we may not see this coming. Um, do you think that we're at risk of heading into um, an uncontrolled spiral of, of not being able to maintain the world's population? Look, it's, it's super possible. The earth won't care if we disappear. Um, you know, it'll keep humming along just like it was before. Species come and species go. Um, and if ours goes, well, in some ways, it'll be a lot easier on the earth because we have a big footprint. But the, um, the key thing to remember is that we human beings and other animals, we don't evolve to want to have children because we didn't know how to make them when we were evolving, you know, when or until very recently, you know, the correlation in sexual activity and, and reproduction is pretty low and pretty delayed. And so lots of even human hunter-gatherer tribes didn't fully understand how it works. And of course, going back to pre-human, they would have had very little to no idea how it works. And so human beings haven't evolved a predilection to want children. Rather, they've evolved a desire to want to have sex and then a tendency to be nurturant to any babies that came along. Well, now by virtue of birth control, we've separated sex from reproduction. And interestingly, once you have, it turns out lots of humans don't want to have babies at all. And so it, it could easily be the case that within maybe even as brief as 10,000 years, there's not that many humans left. And the ones who are left tend to be the ones who, for whatever reason, have inherited the greatest nurturance, the greatest desire to have kids, and those are the ones who are still reproducing. So it's, it's, it'll be very interesting to see. I mean, we won't be able to see it, but I would be curious to know where we're going. Well, unfortunately, none of us can predict the future, but it's certainly a good insight that you've got there into what potentially could happen. So, Well, it's a safe bet sort of- to tell you what will happen in 10,000 years because you can't hold me to it. <laughs> exactly right. Bill, just a last point that I wanted to sort of cover off with you mm-hmm. um, was that I know that you're, or you've been working at the university um, over there at St. Leisure for a number of years. And I was just wondering if you're in the midst of uh, any interesting research or maybe it's uh, too top secret to be talking about any of that no, sort no, of stuff. It's- not top secret at all. We've got we're, we're doing lots of things, and so the UQ is a wonderful place. I've got lots of really great colleagues, and so one of the things that that I did in the book, The Social Leap, is I 
I looked at sort of our evolutionary history, and then I said, well, what implications should that have for the way we live our lives now with regard to things like leadership, um, innovation, sociality, um, as you as we were discussing happiness? And so what's then what we've been doing since then and, and prior to the book as well is working on projects looking at that. So I've got a number of great PhD students. Um, I also work with a number of great undergraduates, and then I've got lots of great colleagues, and we're doing work on innovation and leadership and sociality, you know, social functioning and happiness. Um, and then, of course, I work with lots of colleagues in um, economics and in biology and in lots of other disciplines, and we're trying to do the same sort of thing, applying the same basic evolutionary principles to lots of different kinds of constructs in an effort really just to broadly understand human behavior and and why we do the things that we do. So we have projects that we're doing on overconfidence. We have projects we're doing on what makes people successful negotiators and, and, and in fact, in the role that confidence plays in that. Um, and we're even doing some very applied work. We work with um, uh, heroin users and people like that and strategies to get them off heroin and make their lives better. And, and then we do some work with some, uh, with people who live in very rural environments and, and health underlying health issues and stuff like that. So all over the map, um, just fun and interesting projects that where the opportunity either comes along or where we, where we decide, boy, this would be fun to do. Let's see if we could get funding and, and try to um, explore these ideas. And then we, we also have connections to different businesses as well to see if the ideas that we can do in the lab, we can show that they have the same, that they actually manifest themselves in the real world in the leadership performance of actual business people or how their company performs, et cetera. So Ux is a wonderful place for giving me the opportunity to do such a wide variety of things. You'll certainly be keeping an eye out for that research as you publish it, Bill. I was uh, going to ask you, in regards to the social leap, where is the best place for people to purchase a copy of that book? So here in Australia, you can buy the hard copy at any bookstore and you can download an e-copy um, from, from any Amazon Australia or any of these kind of places. The downside is the audiobook isn't available here. So for complex reasons about where you know, how copyrights work in different countries. Unfortunately, the audiobook uh, is only available outside Australia. Um, but nonetheless, the ebook and, and the hard copy can be bought at any bookstore or any online place that sells books. Absolutely brilliant. Bill, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate your time. I know you're a really, really busy guy, so it means a lot to uh, actually have you here and to have someone uh, such as yourself so uh, well credentialed and and so highly esteemed in your field to uh, to take the time and uh, come and talk to uh, myself today so thank you very much totally my pleasure daniel it's been great chatting with you and uh, a lot of fun chatting about these issues thanks for tuning in we hope you enjoyed the show if you have any questions or comments, head on over to humanly.com slash podcast and join the discussion. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and become part of our growing community of like-minded health professionals. Until next time.